0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of Kentucky Politics, More Than Meets the Eye. I'm your host, Adam Moore, joined today by a friend of mine from college and a potential future colleague, Lauren Hines. Lauren, hey, how are you?
1: Hey, Adam, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. You want to give yourself a brief intro for the people who are listening today?
1: Absolutely. My name is Lauren Hines, and uh, Adam and I were classmates at Murray State University um, 20-ish years ago, a little bit about that time.
0: Almost. I'm not quite that old. <laughs>
1: not quite that. Um, yeah, so I uh, live in Murray, Kentucky. I've, I've stayed around, and um, I am running for the House of Representatives for District 5. I'm really excited to be able to be here and speak with Adam and talk about some of the things that are really important, I think, in our state as well as some national items.
0: Well, let's just dive into it then. I, I always like to start off with something hopefully a little bit silly. And, and last week he was okay. talking about my my cat bringing live mice into our house. And, and today <laughs> I was want to highlight something that is a regular occurrence in the house, but I'll just bring up a personal thing from today, is using AI to help write children's stories. I've got, uh, there's Copilot and then there's now... Uh, Gemini by Google, and then there's the original Chat GPT. What we do is that either I'll come up with something, or Remy will come up with something. And Remy, for those okay. who don't know, is, is my first grade, or uh, my son, and we will have the AI write a story. So today, while Remy ate lunch, we had the worlds of Captain Underpants and Star Wars coming together, and so we had Harold and George and Captain Underpants teaming up with luke wiggly walker i'm um, defeating the <laughs> dark sith professor sithmatic so anyway fun things if you're someone with small kids around the house use those ai things and they'll write some pretty silly stories uh they're not perfect but uh it, it's a good change from whatever books might be on the bookshelf so that's my tidbit from this week
1: you know i think that's better i'm pretty sure my parents made up stories on the spot for me all the time when i was a kid but i think the ai might give it a few more details
0: I'm not quick-witted enough to make up my own story, so I'll let the computer do it for me.
1: I think it's great. That's that's really, really a cool way to, to bring that in and, and use it with your son. Um, you know, it's been an interesting week. I've done a lot of driving around Western Kentucky, and this isn't necessarily silly or, um, you know, a funny story, but just I really have been moved this week by so much of the scenery and everything that I've seen. I was driving to Bowling Green earlier this week and just looking at some of the agricultural fields and, and everything that we have in western Kentucky. It's, it's definitely a really interesting place. And when, you know, we're talking about state politics, so much of what we talk about is Lexington, Louisville, Frankfort. And I really think it's important to, to look at some of the items that come out of Western Kentucky because mm-hmm. we've done a great job. We have such an, you know, a unique and diverse history in our state, especially at this side of the state as well. Um, today, I was at LBL going through. Um, they have a tour that they've done this year called the Road Less Traveled. So we got to go on a big bus tour and see a lot of the sites that you, you know, wouldn't just normally see if you're driving right through see some of the abandoned sites, some of the cemeteries there. So if you ever get the chance to go to LBL, there's some really nice programs there That's land between the lakes here in Western Kentucky.
0: I was going to clarify for our listeners what LBL was, (laughs) but you came back and you got it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's just such a a known thing here that everybody goes by the acronym, but it is a, a wonderful thing that we have an asset to our state and to our region.
0: I think it's neat that you talk about how so much of the focus is on um, Frankfort, Louisville, and Lexington, but there's so much of the state outside of that. Kentucky has historically, and Lauren knows more about history than I do. She, she pursued education <laughs> further along than I made it. But it, Kentucky has historically been on that dividing line of east and westward expansion of the northern and southern border as far as like slave states and the union. And, and it's one of those things that persists in Kentucky. We some of us think that we're Southern. Some of us think that we're Midwestern. Uh, and then we have part of our states in Eastern time zone, part of our states in Central time. You know, I went to school in Murray State with Lauren, and that's a four to four and a half hour drive from Frankfurt. Um, a lot of people from Illinois, Missouri, Tennessee were closer to home than I was. But no, we're a big state with a lot of things in it. And it's important to remember, there's a lot of us that are not along that I-64 corridor that gets maybe too much attention.
1: Absolutely. The Kentucky is actually one of my favorite examples that i used when i taught ap human geography because we talk a lot about culture and how culture is regional and even something as simple as how do you identify as what region of the united states you're from that differs in kentucky and we have to you know work as a state together despite all of these different historical differences on which side we're on you know are we miss western is it soda is it pop right all of those are, or if you're from my family everything is coke whether it is that brand or not. Um, So there's a lot that we have in our state that we don't necessarily agree on in terms of our identity or where we may come from. But I think it's important that we all are able to get together and and work towards progress and and great things for all Kentuckians.
0: That's why it's important we have good legislators from areas like yours, Lauren, that bring those issues to the forefront since uh, otherwise we might be avoiding or missing out on some of that
1: absolutely thank you adam i appreciate that and i i fully agree we need we need people that are gonna get in there and, and move things forward for everyone not just those that are within you know the the areas that people may think traditionally of kentucky because we have everything from murray all the way to eastern kentucky that that is just not quite the same as the central part of the state
0: no absolutely um Speaking of Kentucky, we always like to start by getting into some local issues, whether they're at the local city level or at the state level. I wanna dive in today, Lauren, um, with my state level issue is a house bill, House Bill 255, and it was passed out of committee on Thursday. i actually went to the LRC website earlier today uh, and I tried to pull up the committee vote record and I couldn't find it, but it passed out, according to reporting by the Kentucky Lantern, it passed on a party line vote and it's up now, uh, it's on the schedule to go before the General Assembly for final passage on Tuesday. Now, House Bill 255 okay. is working on addressing child labor laws in Kentucky. And so when most people hear child labor laws, I think in my mind, I'm like, oh, we want to make sure that children aren't working too much. We want to make sure that the children are protected. Now, right now, under current state law, uh, most of the child labor laws goes up to the age of 18. There's some separate sections for 16 to 17 year olds and some separate subsections for 14 to 15 year olds. And then basically below 14, you're supposed to be fairly well off and protected. Now, what we see right now for 16- and 17-year-olds in Kentucky, you can already work up to six hours a day during the school week, up to eight hours a day on a non-school week, totaling up to 30 hours a, a week during a school week. And, and there are already exceptions in place for this. If you're someone who has graduated early or you are maintaining above a 2.0 grade point average and you have sign-off from your parents and your school administrators, you can actually work beyond those things as well. Um, you can work on a school day up to 11 p.m., I believe, under, under current statutes and regulations. That's right. So so that's a, there's a lot of opportunity for people in high school t- to work right now. Uh, and I don't think there's too much that they're being disadvantaged. The problem with this law, or, or not, it's not a law yet, the problem with this bill is that it's to loosen those restrictions. It's to allow for more child labor. And, and I'm going to read a quote here because I would do to disservice if I didn't actually read it. This is from the sponsor. I think this is good to get people out into the workforce, get them some work experience, and hopefully they'll get off the couch quit playing Nintendo games and actually make money. Uh, I'll let you go ahead and Google who it was and who the sponsor that is. I don't want to bedraggle anyone here on the podcast or in my own notes or anything. But uh, I think when you are a 16 to 17 year old high schooler, I don't think the thing that's keeping you, if if you think you're having too much couch time is that darn it, I'm only allowed to work 30 hours a week. In addition to going to school. If you finish school already, you can, yeah, if you finish school already, you can already work 40 hours a week. If you're still in school, I'm sorry, you're only allowed to work six hours a day on a school day. I'm sorry, you're only allowed to work 30 hours a week on a school week. I'm sorry, you're not allowed to work past 11 p.m. That The idea that our children need to be working more than 30 hours a week while they're in school, that our children need to be working more than six hours in a day on a school day, is fairly ludicrous, I would say. Maybe, I don't know if ludicrous is, is too much of a word, Lauren, but that's kind of my, my take on this thing. Uh, now, this has moved forward with a committee substitute. And I do think the committee substitute has put some very specific protections as the exact types of work uh, and employment that these minors are not able to perform. And I think that's good in the committee substitute. But I don't understand why people are looking to looseness this in the first place. I think it sends the wrong message. Again, I think that the, the wave of time and timelines on things in America and hopefully in Kentucky is that we progress as a society, that we want our children to live a better life than we lived. it. My dad was the oldest of five boys. And that meant that during tobacco season, he missed a month of school during harvest and a month of school during planting because he was the oldest and he was out there working with my granddad. And guess what? The other boys in the family didn't have to, and he never got problems at school because it was expected. That was the culture. We now live in a different society where we should want our children to not have to do that same thing where they're working out, you know, in this kind of labor and also getting an education at the same time. We should want them to be able to focus on school and not have to go to that other stuff.
1: I, I couldn't agree with you more, Adam. Um, I was a high school teacher for 13 years. Um, I've taught other grades, but, you know, I, I believe that this legislation is primarily targeted at high school age students. I don't think any of us are, are wanting to have, you know, 10 and 11 year olds working 40 hours a week. I would hope not. Um, but when I think about a student already potentially working six hours on a school day, Say the child gets out of school at three o'clock, you're working until nine o'clock and you already have not accounted for homework, transportation to and from those places. You haven't accounted for any time spent with family, for eating meals, you know, even for something as simple as having a little bit of time with your friends. I've seen students over the past few years have less and less time outside of school. And a lot of that has You know, you do have students who are going to work who are supporting their families. You do have students who are involved in so many different activities, whether it's sports, band, um, different athletic events that take up such a huge part of their time. I think that already having students work 30 hours a week is a lot if we're asking them to also go to school full time absolutely i do think that there are you know ways to make this work to get them to work to 40 hours if that's what the parents want if that's what the students want we already have that legislation mm-hmm. if they have a 2.0 grade average right. uh, when i was in high school we had work in, to school programs where if you had all of your credits that you were going to need to graduate your senior year you could leave at a certain point of the day and go to work with a pre approved employer Sure. That was managed throughout this with the school, you know, mm-hmm. there's obviously been some lack of labor in different aspects of our you know, industries. And I think that this bill, not just in our state, but in other states as well, we've seen similar measures brought up. And I think it is meant to address those types of labor shortages that we're seeing primarily at low wage places like fast food restaurants and retail. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be creative solutions that become necessary to address those problems. I agree 100% with that, but I don't think that it's already that it's making our students who already may be working 30 hours a week, 40 if they have permission and, and the correct grade point average, yep. but to not even provide a limit beyond that and to provide mm-hmm. limits that, you know, we've, we've had these protections in place for a long time for a reason. And right. I don't feel like I've seen a very, Convincing argument as to why it's time to get rid of them now.
0: No, I appreciate you bringing a little bit more of your personal side of things as a high school teacher, and just some nuance and understanding to it as well. Um, clearly, you and I are pretty aligned on this, and I try not to yeah. um, beat a dead horse on here because we we'll have to keep it <laughs> moving along. So, I don't think we'll belabor the point too much more. But no, thanks for your for your insights on that, Lauren. And and again, this is called House Bill two fifty five. So, if you're listening, you know, please call. Uh, the house again they're going to be voting on tuesday if i can get this out beforehand otherwise if it passes i hope you're calling um, your state senators as well and, and giving them a your two cents on it if it does move over to that chamber uh absolutely. thank you. lauren do you want to do you want to pass in um to your state or local issue you wanted to talk about tonight
1: absolutely um kind of going in a similar topic with education um I I wanted to talk about Senate Bill 6 particularly, but also some of the different measures uh, that we've seen brought up in the legislature that are called um, kind of these anti-diversity, equity, and inclusion bills. Um, This particular bill, um, if you read some of the sections, just at first glance, it really doesn't seem to be stating anything that inflammatory. For example, um, the first one, all of this is talking about discriminatory concepts, basically. And whenever we have these types of discriminatory concepts, these are the things that they're trying to fight against that we're talking about in diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, A lot of them, if, if we go kind of down the list, then the first one is that one race or sex is inherently superior, or inferior to another race or sex. That is something that should not be taught. Obviously, I agree with that. There are really, really good things in this list that I do think that we should make sure that we include. Mm-hmm. My concern with a lot of this, and I think is similar for many of the educators that I've discussed this with, as well as a lot of this is centered upon the university level. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these issues, and I'm going to go down to, to one of the things that it just it calls a discriminatory, discriminatory concept, is... Um, Anytime that an individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or another form of psychological distress solely because of an individual's race or sex, that's not something that is being taught to students. Mm-hmm. You know, if a student feels some sort of psychological distress because they're learning about history and concepts in history where one group has had power over another, that is something that you have to be able to discuss in order to understand the different balances of why a certain event happened the way that it did um i think it's really the problem that i see mostly with this bill is that so many of these things can be taken the wrong way and can kind of lead to you know attacks against certain educators or teachers because a student felt a certain way after a lesson and if we're talking about events in history where we're looking at you know slavery for example if we're talking about certain types of conflict there are going to be students who may feel some sort of psychological distress from that and that Mm -hmm. is kind of in some ways an important part of the learning process is to understand Mm -hmm. man these awful things happened in our past I really really hope that our generation is able to kind of get through that and so I think that that leaving a lot of these ideas of discriminatory, and they did call it divisive concepts in the first language of the bill, but that was later removed. Um, A lot of these things are just so open-ended that it leads to issues for educators in their day-to-day career to every time they navigate a part of their curriculum, where a student could potentially have an issue with what they are being taught about when it comes to race, gender, or sex, ethnicity. That puts the educator in a very, very difficult and awkward position. Um, I don't know of any teacher that is trying to to tell anything except the facts of what happened. And in mm-hmm. my job as a teacher, I always wanted to make sure that my job was first and foremost to give students the facts and information and to let them learn how to think about it themselves. But this makes that very difficult to do in some of those classes, especially at the university level. Um, we have classes, for example, in gender studies that would be maybe not even legal, according to some of this legislation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really important for us to think about the ramifications that we will have if we can't necessarily have, um, you know, full discussions of of events that have happened in the past and what the implications are for our society in the future.
0: Sure. Things like this make me wonder, if this passes into law, can students even ask the question of why it was a big deal that Rosa Parks sat on the front of the bus? Could students be taught, you know, about the Selma marches or Martin Luther King Jr.'s letters from a Birmingham jail? Like, could they be taught these things? I remember being taught, uh, it sounded, this, this is sad, this is going to sound terrible, but I remember thinking it didn't sound so bad when I heard about the fire hoses getting turned on to them. Oh, you think about people being sprayed by water. And then the teacher tells you, no, that would literally rip someone's skin off their body. Yeah. That's literally a thing yeah. that they would do to to Americans, um, and and if you and, aren't and that taught, is the that, problem, right? It,
1: it, the problem is that there is that question as to will this or will this not be counted as a discriminatory concept? Will I get in trouble for teaching about, like you said, Selma? Would I get in trouble for teaching about about Black Wall Street and what happened there in in Tulsa, Oklahoma? Would I get in trouble for teaching the curriculum that is provided in AP Psychology, for example, that talks about gender and, and sexuality, that is one of the units. And we even saw in Florida after some similar similar legislation uh, was put out, that the College Board said, "Well, we we may not be able to to offer this class anymore because it, it would go against the law to to teach some of the standardized curricula to have this at the college level." It's just very difficult in the way that this language can be interpreted makes it very, very difficult for teachers to know even if they are on the right side of the law as they're teaching. And like you said, if there's a student in the class, they have a question, how do you then address that question without getting into that territory, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just very, very difficult to be able to understand how that this is going to be applied without some sort of guidance from, you know, the Kentucky department of education, which I'm sure if this bill passes will be kind of that next step. And I look forward to see what they say. Sure. Um, it has already passed out of the Senate. So it is in the house committee on committees. I'm not sure what will happen with it after that. Um, but there are other bills within this topic to, to kind of, you know, keep an eye on in this legis- in this session.
0: Um, one thing I just want to put out there, um, in Germany, students learn about the Holocaust, and yes. it's not glossed over, and it's not left out of the history books. They learn about World War II, and they learn about World War I, and they learn about a fairly complete view of their history in the 20th century. Um, and there's a reason for that. And Lauren, as an educator, you can explain it more than I am. They learn the history so that the same things don't happen again. They see the mistakes that were made, and they don't want it to happen again. Did You may have seen the news, I think it was yesterday, where a group of out and out nazis with their swastika flags were at the tennessee state Capitol, and i I love what there are some comments like nazis should not feel this safe to just walk out in the united states like (laughs) which is a fair point but i remember seeing commentators from germany saying that we learn why no one should be flying the nazi flag anymore what is wrong with america that people feel like it's okay to be out in broad daylight flying the nazi flag and it's because we beat around these issues and we don't treat we don't teach the facts and the truth of this history,
1: and, and I'll agree with you on on some of this. You know, how did we get to the point where that was okay? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, adding on to what you said about in Germany, when I was in high school, we had a foreign exchange student who was from Austria. We took her uh, when we went to to Washington D.C. to the National Holocaust Museum, and that was for her. She had learned some of the history in school. We were still, you know, sophomores in high school. I don't think she'd learned everything yet, but that was an amazing event for her in terms of she knew what had happened, but she didn't have necessarily all of the depth and understanding Mm -hmm. of that. Um, Watching her and kind of seeing it through her eyes really changed my uh, interpretation a lot. And, you know, I think we see that this is something that is not, it's not an easy thing to talk about because we don't want students to feel bad about what has happened in history. And I don't think anyone is trying to say that you are responsible for the actions of your great, 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 mm-hmm. great grandparents. No teacher is saying that mm-hmm. we're simply trying to say the facts that because as you said, and the old refrain goes, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And that really is what we're looking at here. I'll add in addition to this, you know, we always talk about, I feel like a big problem whenever we're looking at a lot of these issues is is whether it is something that the state government should be deciding or should be done on the local levels. Mm
0: -hmm. That was
1: discussed over and over again in COVID, right? We don't want the state to make these decisions to shut down. We don't want the state to close the schools. We don't want the state to do ABC. But 71% of of people who were polled in a recent study by Mason Dixon, I think it just came out last week. So that they believe that these DEI measures should be controlled at the local university level. And that was regardless of party, Democrats, uh, Republicans, independents, all a majority of them said that they believe that this should be left up to the local institutions to decide. So if that is the truth, then why don't we allow this to be something that is created as a policy at the university or institutional level? It also brings into question, you know, here at Murray State University, we have the Marvin D. Mills Multicultural Center that is made to help students um, who may be in minority groups. Mm. Would that affect their projects, their funding, their Mm. scholarships? And I just think so many of these things are not quite understood and are just, you know, perhaps not what the voters of Kentucky want in the first place.
0: These are difficult issues and that's why they make for good conversation and there are no simple answers on these things um but i am yeah. glad that you called out that that study that poll that came out again that 71 of kentuckians this just wasn't just um in the us at large this was actually a poll of kentuckians isn't that right lauren
1: yes um, i can pull up that fact i believe i have it linked uh but yes it was kentuckians and it was done yep. state by statewide region by region and and you saw very little differences honestly right
0: all right well no right. thanks for diving into that and uh i do want to uh pop on outside the, the kentucky realm to the national issue a little bit um i'll dive into my thing first that's all right with you
1: absolutely
0: so i want I want to dive into something that made some big news two days ago we're recording this again on sunday evening is we saw a judge order the former president president trump to pay more than i think it was 354.9 million dollars plus interest, you can look at the whole number, I think it's something over 400 million when, when it's all calculated up there, um, regarding basically financial fraud, lying for years about wealth on financial statements used to secure loans and to make deals on building the real estate empire, um, saying they falsify business records, issuing false financial statements, comp- conspiracy to commit insurance fraud, and conspiracy to falsify business records. Uh, so a, a big payday for the, for the former president. And what I wanted to Point out today was not dancing on this decision or anything like that. What I want to do is address those people who might be listening who are the Trump voters. And I know that typically when people like myself who are Democrat who talk about President Trump, they're shaming the Trump voters. They're trying to make them feel ashamed of their voting record or saying that if you vote for Trump, you're not moral. Or if you vote for Trump, you're not a Christian. Or if you vote for Trump, you're not a real patriot. There's so much negativity out there. And I don't want to come across that way. So again, the the issue here is fraud. And I wanted to call attention to a couple other things. Trump University, a company that offered courses between 2005 and 2010, was shown to have used misleading marketing practices, aggressive sales taxes. We had students that did not get the mentoring and courses that they they thought they paid for. Um, They had thousands of dollars in tuition fees that were taken that were not refunded or that was overcharged. Anyway, that was settled for $25 million. Uh, I think that was settled in 2017 Uh, also looking into some things as well as far as just his history with working with contractors both in new york but also even abroad too this history uh over decades of withholding payment delaying payment paying less than the agreed upon amount to workers carpenters plumbers painters lawyers and his own employees uh and things that essentially the consistent narrative and the story that's been on all these people is that you know they complete the work as was given in the proposal that was actually in the documentation and then a refusal to pay uh, then by the man or the business himself. And, and so the, what I'm saying here is not to, not to shame the Trump voters who might be listening. It's just showing this pattern that the man is historically a con man. And we, I, I don't feel, I don't hold those contractors who did the work that they was agreed upon. And then they didn't get a paycheck. That's not their fault. And these students who, signed up for Trump University and they thought that they were going to learn these things and get good mentorship and get whatever out of it, but they did not get it. It's I, I do not blame them. It's not their fault. And the same people who were conned by Donald Trump by saying things like, we're going to build the wall and make Mexico pay for it, things that were clearly snake oil. Yeah. It's not your fault. We are human. Yeah. And it's not just coming from Donald Trump that you were told this too. you were, it was told to you from Facebook algorithms and Instagram algorithms and TikTok algorithms and Fox News and CNN and this radio station and that radio program and this podcast. I want to just go out there and say that it's okay that we got conned by this person if you voted for him or not. I didn't vote for Hillary uh, Clinton in 2016. I didn't vote for Trump either. I voted for Gary Johnson because I couldn't stand either one of them and I wanted to vote for the libertarian candidate. That's. God's honest truth right there. Um, and that's but no, I was right. not. Yeah. And I, and, but I didn't, I was like, oh, this Trump's a, I wasn't going to vote for Hillary just to beat him. Um, but no, I, I just want to put it out there that the man has swindled so many people. And what he went from is from swindling his contractors to swindling potential students to now swindling voters. And shoot, he was, what is it? He was hawking $399 sneakers at, at uh, what was it called? A sneaker con yesterday. And he's oh, trying to get yeah. people to pay $400 for Trump sneakers. Um, yeah. I, I just want to hold some space uh, uh, on this and just say, the man has established a pattern. And, and I know there's all this stuff about being a witch hunt and, and this, that, and the other about you know the poor guy. He's really been, had a hard time at getting all these things. I just want to say, man, he has really built a history here of the same thing over and over and over again. And it's just conning one group of people to conning the next group of people to conning the next group of people. And, and I hope if you're listening to this and you're a potential Trump voter, I just wanted to say I'm not going to shame you or tell you that you're not a real American or you're not a patriot or, or any of these things that, unfortunately, people from the left too often lob in your direction. I just want to say, like, you know, this happened to so many people. And, and I hope that this is an eye opener and you can see that he's conning you as well, um, and you and millions and millions and millions of people. But I just hope that this is an opportunity for you to just kind of, you know, take that look in the mirror, maybe unplug from certain media sources or certain outlets that, that tell you that this man is, you know, can do no wrong and this, that, and the other. Um, I really don't have a hard, a hard point here to make. And I know that I'm just rambling at this point, but <laughs> I just want, no, I just want to put out there that we're all human and we all make mistakes and we all follow people who who will mislead. And these things will happen to all of us, Lauren. And, um, and I just want to hold that space for those people and let them know that, They're still American, they're still human and and we can accept them. And if you voted for Trump before and you, that's okay. And I just hope that uh, you always think about it before just following what you're told to do uh, by the man and the media outlets telling you to keep voting for him this time.
1: You know, I think you brought up a couple of points there that I I think are really important. Um, I, coming from Western Kentucky, coming from Kentucky, we are not a blue state. We are not a red state completely in any area. Um, I have plenty of family and friends who are Trump voters, probably many, many, many friends who are Trump voters. And I don't think it's productive to shame people because of the way that they voted. You know, that was four years ago at this point, nearly. And it it, it is sad. You know, it is really sad to see that someone who held the highest office in the land is going through a trial like this. Not only that, it's embarrassing for us as a country on the international stage. It, It truly is. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that the media has done a lot on both sides here in terms of getting us riled up to to support our candidate without really mm-hmm. doing the research and and being able to just have conversations with each other without it getting heated or, or devolve into arguments about, you know, Trump versus Biden or, or whoever, you know, previously, we, you know, it, it, talking about Clinton, of course, Um I think it is incredibly important that we do exactly what I was talking about previously with Senate Bill 6, is this is not the first time in history where we've seen someone rise to power through empty, empty promises, through avoiding, pro- or avoiding doing the right thing, through you know just kind of getting through all of the things that he's done through without having an underlying policy to kind of back him up. I think it's been, you know, obviously interesting to see some of the things that they've shown in this lawsuit about the ways that he has overvalued property, but then undervalued it for his own uh, gain financially. And um, I, I think it's really important that we kind of look at as, as a society is, okay, we let it get this far. What do we do now? You know, do we dive into this You know, we've already gone this far and and we're not going to back off now. Or can we take a second, take a breath, pause and actually do some critical thinking as as Mm. to whether this is the person that we want to be representing our interests nationally, but also internationally?
0: Mm. Yeah. No, thank you. And I hope, uh, yeah, I hope that we all take a moment to pause and reflect. And on the left, on the right, if you view yourself as a libertarian or in the center or an independent or green party, I hope that we all take some time to do some of our own internal deep dives instead of just, you know, opening up and, and taking whatever talking points may be fed to us by our favorite Alice, but we actually do some of our own internal looking and, uh, and actually yeah, start asking those deeper, harder questions from ourselves.
1: Yeah, I agree. Well, um, I can move on to my topic if you would want as well. Yeah, get it to it. All right. So um, moving kind of across the world, but also talking about world leaders. Um, we saw some interesting developments, um, today. It's just a couple days ago. Um, If you're not familiar with Alexei Navalny, he was one of the opposition leaders for Putin um, in Russia. And he was, it was announced that he was uh, found dead through sudden death syndrome. That is the claim from Russia in um, what has been referred to as an Arctic prison. This is one of the most um, secure prison systems that they have in Russia. And back in december i believe it was that there was some news that he had gone missing basically from the prison system his family lawyers weren't really sure where he would end up mm-hmm. um so he did end up in one of the northernmost uh, prisons which if you think of it kind of is you know what we would have referred to 50 years ago as a gulag is basically mm-hmm. where they sent him yeah and so he was found dead 2 days ago and this is the man who in 2020 um, was poisoned, at least it was suspected that it was by the FSB, which is, you know, the the intelligence service in, in Russia. Um, he went to Germany for several months to receive treatment for that poisoning. And then he returned to Russia of his own accord and um, was arrested and has been in the prison system ever since. You know, I don't think that anyone with... Um, much knowledge of the situation, doesn't think that the government of Russia or even specifically Putin, had you know no role in in this um, death. He was only forty seven years old. He has had obviously some issues with health over the past few years after having suffered from that poisoning as well as being in solitary confinement for over three hundred days over the course of his imprisonment. Um, but this is this is just something that happens in Russia. And it is something that happens when we see authoritarian regimes that refuse to give power to democratically elected leaders. Uh-huh. And that is the crux of the issue here is that is what Navalny was trying to do, was trying to run to, to you know, be a force for democracy in Russia, which is not something that we've seen that Russia has legitimately had. And um, unfortunately, this um, this fight, you know, took his life as well. We have seen just in the days since that there have been protests happening in Russia, which is a not, you know, necessarily common occurrence. There have been at least 400 arrested, some of whom were doing acts as simple as laying flowers at memorial sites for Navalny Mm -hmm. throughout the country. And I think that there's um, some big questions as to the implications that this is going to have in international politics and not just internationally, but how is this going to affect our own efforts in the ongoing war in Ukraine? You know, is, is this going to end up being something that is going to have far reaching implications for the Putin administration? Is there going to be some sort of, you know, increase um, in in demonstrations or in protest against the government? Because and for many people, I think Navalny can be a sort of martyr, martyr to the cause of democracy. Sure. sure. Um, it's too early to know. Uh, for sure, how a lot of this is going to take shape. It is an incredibly complicated region when we talk about how politics are organized. It's, it, it is not democratic. You know, it is an oligarchy where you have a few people who have the power concentrated into their hands and and democratic candidates like Navalny, just, they don't live long. And I think that tells you a lot, a lot about the, the state of democracy in Russia, which is non-existent basically at this point. Um, but I think there's a lot of interesting things that this could bring up in the future as to is Putin going to be reelected again? If so, is he going to maintain his grip on power? And what does that mean for the war in Ukraine?
0: Um, I think it's interesting for us to watch out for because Putin is such a huge Putin in Russia, is such a huge player on the global scene as far as everything that happens in Europe. But you know, I mean, Russia spans Europe and Asia. You know, Eurasia, it's going to be a power player. It's going to be tied into what happens in China as well. And they sort have ties with North Korea. And then, of course, like you're saying, Ukraine. And if anybody was able to sit through the interview with Tucker Carlson, he's talking about Poland. Um, it, it's, scary, it's scary times, you know, a little bit. I don't say that anyone yeah. needs to be turning this podcast off and then needs to be like, you know, crawling <laughs> underneath the bed or anything like that. But no, like it, you're saying, it, we don't really know what the future holds as far as this goes. I, I also want to use this as an opportunity to say that words matter sometimes we say things and it's kind of cute um you know and and, sh- and what it makes me think of is you ask the shirt you know i'd rather have putin than a democrat that's cute you know it's kind of funny and things like this brought bring to attention you know this is a person who literally murders his political opponents whether it's poisonings whether it's throwing people out of windows whether it's blowing them up in a helicopter um You know, those words matter. And and sometimes it's not really cute when you realize that the T-shirt that you're wearing or the things that you're making a joke about online is literally about people getting, you know, being killed because they have the audacity to lay a wreath on someone's grave. Um, It's terrible. So that's it. Words matter. And yeah, this might be a little bit not scary, but uncertainty for what the future holds of that region of the world.
1: Right, and, and and certainty can always be scary, and and it is going to be something that plays out as as we see. Um, you know, it is easy to look at the state of the world and think about the the ties that Russia then has, you know, with some of the other countries that you talk about, and and it is a little bit scary to think about the possibilities in the future. But that is such an important thing for us to do is to look at what is happening around the world, not just because it is important for us to make good policy decisions, but also because it's important for us to be well-educated um, you know, well and rational citizens. And this is just another one of those examples of a time where, again, we see the threats to democracy that we can learn about by looking mm-hmm. at other examples around the world. It's yes. not like we have to look at, we've had issues in our own democracy as of late. We can see these same patterns happening in other places. And I think it's important for us to take a step back and and to look at, you know, how did it get to that point and to make steps here today and now so that we don't see points in the future in the United States where this would even be an issue. Because it it is not an unforeseen absolute that the United States will be a democracy forever if we don't fight to preserve and keep it.
0: I always love that. Ben Franklin quote you know a republic if you can keep it and um, yeah that quote is how many years old now 200 and that was from 1792 so eight plus what 232 year old quote um, is just as relevant today as it was then
1: I agree I really do
0: well I think we uh, I think we hit an- enough for uh, a Sunday evening Lauren do you want to tell uh, people listening how to find you and follow along with what you're doing
1: Absolutely. Uh, You can find my campaign page at lauren4ky.com, and that's the number four, lauren4ky.com. You can also email me at lauren4ky uh, at gmail.com. Just looking forward to um, learning a little bit more about kind of the candidate cycle and and what um, campaigning will look like. Uh, I don't have a primary, so I'm just waiting kind of for the general in November, but I'm really, really enjoying getting to connect with some old friends in the realm of politics and get to talk about things that are passionate that I find um, that I'm very passionate about, like uh, international relations and and education.
0: Well, I'm glad you're doing it because one, you're a friend and number two, because as you've demonstrated here, you're more intelligent than I am. Um, But no, you you (laughs) would be a great person to have in that state house. So
1: So go follow
0: Lauren there, go to her website, shoot her an email, if you have anything you want to say to her. Um, Other than that, Thank you all for sticking around here with us. If you uh, listen to us on Apple, Spotify, wherever it is, if you would follow us, um, hit that follow button on there, like, review the show, give us five stars so we can find more people and more people can find us. Other than that, I hope you have a blessed night, and we'll see you again next time. Signing off.